So we have the chance today to finish the book of Genesis, 50 chapters. This is the last one. And uh, before we start, if you would just join me in a word of prayer, please. Um, our God and our Father, um, it's uh, after five today. We've all been involved in different things. I especially ask that you'd quiet my heart, you'd quiet the hearts of those who are here tonight as well, that you would allow us to kind of block out the things of the day, and that we might really be able to, to hone in and listen to your word tonight, listen to what you have for us, and ultimately have quite enough hearts to hear it and the courage to apply it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Let's pop that down here. Sorry. I'm going to need that later. Okay. Put that on. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey writes this. During a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world <coughs> asked and debated what if any belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began by eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, well, other religions have different versions of God's appearing in human form. What about resurrection? Again, other religions had accounts of returns from the death. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he asked. And he heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And this was his response. Oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace, God's unmerited favor toward us, totally unearned, totally undeserved. While all other world religions offer ways in which we can earn God's approval, Christianity teaches us that God's love is unconditional. Excuse me. Grace is not dependent on human effort at all. In fact, grace does not depend on what we can do for God but rather on what God has already done for us. You see, our sins, which separate us from God, can be forgiven only because the giver of grace himself has paid our debt on the cross. Grace and forgiveness. So now, with, for the next few minutes, I want us to imagine grace and forgiveness from two sides. First, the side of the giver of grace. The second, the side and perspective of the receiver of grace. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is this, I kind of messed that up, I apologize. But let's get started. Let's view today's text again. This time, I want to review it, and I want to pay attention to who the givers of grace are and who the receivers of grace are in this very short but dramatic exchange between Joseph and his brothers. Now remember, after living in Egypt for 17 years, Jacob has now died. And after many uh, days of mourning, some 70 days, J Joseph and his brothers take Jacob back, carry him back to bury him in the family plot in Canaan. So I want to reread these first couple of verses that Jonathan read for us, and I want us to pay very close attention to who the giver and receivers of grace are. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph. Excuse me. 
saying, your father has left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Well, did you guys see them, the giver? Did you see the receivers of grace in the passage? I know, actually, it's not that difficult to identify the giver and receivers of grace in this passage. All of us, if we're honest, have had opportunities to give grace and certainly the need to receive it. You see, we are all sinners in need of receiving grace and forgiveness. And we are also all sinners called to give grace and forgiveness to other sinners. So now, for the remainder of today, let's try to look at grace and forgiveness through the eyes and perspective of Joseph's brothers, sinners in need of grace, and second, let's try to look at grace from the, eye, the eyes and perspective of Joseph, one a sinner himself who gives grace to other sinners. But in the process, I'm going to ask you guys to do something with me. I want to try to answer these two questions as we go through this, okay? How can we receive grace and forgiveness as Joseph's brothers did? And then how can we give grace and forgiveness in the way Joseph did? So let's begin. Let's begin by looking at grace through the eyes of Joseph's brothers, sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. Now, we already said that Joseph's, well, we know this from a previous passage. Joseph told his brothers that it was God who sent him to, sent them, sent him to Egypt, not them. But remember, that was 17 years ago. After their father died, Joseph's brothers feared that Joseph might now seek revenge for the things they did to him. Now, I don't know about you, but imagine being in their shoes. They might have been thinking things like, has he really been sincere? What we really did to him is unforgivable. Has he been kind to us just because of our father out of respect for Jacob? With dad now gone, is he going to actually give us what we deserve? I don't mean to laugh, that's serious. So his brothers send a message to Joseph, pleading for his forgiveness. And as we've read, Joseph's response, he's wept. And after sending the message, they go to Joseph. They throw themselves down before him in submission to his authority. They go as far as saying, we will be your slaves. Saying, you understand what that means? That you are, we are at your service. You can do with us what you want. Now remember, what I'm trying to point out here is in this situation, Jacob's brothers are recipients of grace and forgiveness. And in the short interchange, we observe two key characteristics of a giver, excuse me, of a receiver of grace and forgiveness. The recognition of sin followed by repentance due to sorrow, due to cause of sin. So first, there is recognition of sin. The first and I would say arguably the most vital step in the process of receiving grace and forgiveness is the recognition and acknowledgement of our offense. 
This is what the Bible refers to as confessing our sins. In this passage, Joseph's brothers recognize the terrible things they did to Joseph. They don't make excuses, but simply acknowledge what they did to him. Second, there is repentance. Repentance for the sorrow that their sin has caused. While not explicitly stated here, it's in chapter 44, in the exchange between Joseph and his older brother Judah, that we see the depth of Judah's sorrow. Sorrow which ultimately led to his repentance. As you guys remember, he was willing to trade places with Benjamin and remain in Egypt as a slave. It wasn't trading places for something easy. That was incredibly difficult to do. Just to bring it back to you, referring to his brother Benjamin, we can read in Genesis 44 what Judah was willing to do. And this is an exchange that he had with his brother Joseph before he knew Joseph, who Joseph was. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. And how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Judah was willing to trade places, trade his life for Benjamin's life in order to spare his father the loss that Benjamin would bring, the loss of Benjamin's life would bring to Jacob. You know, that's what the Bible calls godly sorrow. Sorrow which leads to repentance. Turning away from sin and turning to God. In the New Testament, <coughs> Paul tells us that godly sorrow brings <coughs> repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, godly sorrow is evidence of a repentant heart. A heart that is sorrowful because of the brokenness that our sin brings. A heart that is concerned with the effects that my sin has on my relationship with God and with others, with you. In contrast, Worldly sorrow is more concerned with self, with me. The consequences of my sin only as they relate to me and me alone. Now, if you just take a step back, I think you might know what I mean. It's the kind of sorrow that you feel only because you got caught. Okay, I, I have felt that. <laughs> okay, I have been caught. And maybe to just give you a small example to kind of illustrate have you ever kind of rolled through a stop sign or maybe knowingly gone a little above the speed limit? I mean, maybe you didn't get a ticket. I don't know. Or maybe you did. And by the way, I did say knowingly. Well, I have. And, you know, I almost didn't want to tell you this, but the truth is, in any one of those instances, there is no regret. There was no remorse for breaking the law. None. Zero, okay? But most of it was frustration because I got caught what I was doing, not to mention the financial penalties that may have come along with it. You see, that's an example of worldly sorrow. And in contrast to godly sorrow, it does not lead to repentance, I assure you. I've done it more than once, okay? So I want to share, say this to you, that we can be confident receivers of God's grace and forgiveness 
Because when we humbly confess our sin and with a repentant heart ask his forgiveness, God promises to forgive us. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, he says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. In the story, the familiar story to some of you of the prodigal son, we see these two key characteristics of the receiver of grace and forgiveness, the recognition of sin and repentance. You may recall in the story, the man, there was a man who had two sons, the younger of whom comes to the father and asks for his inheritance. The father grants his request and the younger son subsequently leaves home and squanders all his wealth and wild living. And to make matters even worse, the story tells us there was a great famine in the land. And we read then in Luke's gospel, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will go out and go back to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. Now this short but familiar story truly illustrates the heart, the very heart of a receiver of grace. But it also gives us a glimpse into the heart of a giver of grace and forgiveness. So let's now look at grace and forgiveness through the eyes of Joseph, a sinner called to grant grace and forgiveness to other sinners, but not just other sinners. We've read for a couple of chapters now to sinners who did an incredibly awful thing, a dastardly deed to their brother. Okay? <clears throat> Personal harm was great. They brought him many years of hardship. So I want to return to today's text because his response is amazing. I don't want you to lose sight of it. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, those of us who have been sinned against, and I would suggest that's everyone in the room, may ask, how did Joseph do it? I mean, how was he able to forgive his brothers? I don't know about you, but this is, even before Jonathan asked me, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. But I can tell you, over the years, I've asked myself many questions that I'm going to ask you because they've been to me. How would I have responded if I was in Joseph's sandals? How would I have, would I have actually shared Joseph's perspective on the past if all those things happened to me? I know the answer to some of those questions. They're somewhat rhetorical. And then I would have asked, would I have been able to view the past and the unjust treatment by my brothers the way Joseph did? 
Now the Israelites, hearing this story for the first time, they must surely have been challenged by this radical form of forgiveness. Aren't you? I mean, really, I truly find Joseph's uh, response incredibly challenging. And before continuing, I need to do something. I want to clarify what I mean by challenging. In full disclosure, before Jonathan asked me <laughs> if I would be willing to preach on, the, preach on this passage, I would have thought of myself as one who was characterized as a giver of grace. But the more time that I have spent preparing this sermon, the more challenged I have become in seeing myself in that light. I mean it. You see, while I can certainly identify myself as a sinner, I find it all too easy to identify the sin in others easier than the sin in myself. Let's just make, say it this way. Giving grace and forgiveness is not as natural as I once thought. Not for me, anyhow. So please understand, while I will attempt to share some thoughts regarding the heart of a giver of grace, I by no means am a master giver, okay, of grace at all. And like you, I am still a work in progress. Okay, then. Let's, persuade, uh, let's proceed. I am persuaded that at least I cannot fully comprehend this radical form of forgiveness until I realize, until we realize how much God has forgiven us. And as we so often see in the Bible, Joseph's response <laughs> reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. Joseph's rhetorical but profound question, am I in the place of God, tells us Joseph was trusting judgment of his brothers to God. He did not view this as his job. But in Joseph's response, there is a sense of humility characteristic of a giver of grace and forgiveness. While surely the rejection he experienced at the hands of his brothers was real and emotional scars deep, Joseph humbly recognizes that God's role in the process of giving and receiving grace and thereby trusted all judgment of his brothers to, his, to God. I want to read you something here from Paul Tripp, pastor and author, on the subject of forgiveness. Forgiveness is much easier for the person who lives consciously of the reality of how much he also needs to be forgiven. Paul Tripp goes on to say, nobody gives grace better than someone who is convinced he needs it as well. Now, while his journey has been filled with hardship, we get the sense that Joseph understands and appreciates the grace that his, he has received from God, so much so that he seems eager to give grace and forgiveness to his brothers. Now, writing about forgiveness and the struggle we have in giving it, Paul Tripp also says, this one is key. The word remembering is a big deal here. Forgiveness requires remembering. He says, why is it that we are so skilled at remembering the other's weakness, failure and sin, so adept at forgetting, but so adept at forgetting our own? Why are we so good at seeing all the ways that another needs to be forgiven, 
but forget how great our need for forgiveness is. When we are filled with the grief of our own sin and with gratitude for the amazing forgiveness we have been given, then we will find joy in giving to others what we have received. Perhaps a lifestyle of forgiveness is rooted in the sin of forgetfulness, he says. We forget that there is not a day in our lives that we do not need to be forgiven. We forget that we will never graduate from the need for grace. We forget that we have been loved with a love we could never earn, never achieve, and never deserve. We forget that God never mocks our weakness, never finds joy in throwing our failures in our face, never threatens to turn his back on us, and never makes us buy our way back into his favor. When you remember, when I remember, when you carry with you a deep appreciation for the grace you have been given, when I carry a deep appreciation for the grace I have been given, I'll have a heart that is ready to forgive. Okay, that was a lot. And you might think, yeah, right, Chris, you, Paul Tripp, that's easy for you. you. You don't know what I've been through. And I will acknowledge, and it's true, I don't know what you've been through or what you've been through or any one of you have been through. And I never walked in your shoes. And I don't mean to imply the process that I'm describing is easy. No, I'm not. Unlike the Nike commercial, let's say it this way, I am not saying just do it. I'm not. That would be foolish. I know it's not possible that way. And it would imply that being a Joseph-like grace giver is possible if we merely just try harder. No, that's not what I'm saying. No, not at all. But what I am saying is this. With God's help, we can, we can become givers of grace like Joseph. The Apostle Paul said this. Catch this. Listen, I can do everything, everything through him who gives me strength. That's not jump off a building and fly. That's not what he's talking about. But everything in this contents means including forgiving those who sin against us. While in our own strength, this may not be possible at times, I am convinced that with God, all things are possible. In fact, experiencing the cost of forgiving others actually serves to help us, it helps me, to better understand how God graciously accepts us, me, even though we, I, don't deserve it. We had the Psalms earlier. I'd like to read a part of it again from Psalm 103. Listen carefully. Let's put it back up there. Oh, wrong place. I'm sorry, I'm a little slow here. Great. That's what I want to... We read it. I, <coughs> okay. I want to read it again. It's behind me. I'm going to read it from here. I'm going to read it slow enough. I want you some words to really sink in. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. 
He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Catch this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's far. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far God has removed our sins from us. That's forgiveness. I want to return to the story of the prodigal son for just a minute. And in it, we find the truth is this, that we are all prodigals. We are all in need of receiving grace, both from God and from those that we hurt when we sin against them. And in the story of the prodigal son, we know the father represents God who offers grace and forgiveness to his lost son with no strings attached. If you remember, there was no repayment for the inheritance he squandered. None. There was no retribution for the overt disrespect he showed his father in demanding respect, excuse me, demanding his inheritance. But rather, there was reunion. There was reconciliation. There was restoration because of the grace offered to him by his father. I would call that extravagant grace. In fact, that's the story of salvation. Yes, we are all sinners in need of grace and forgiveness. And yes, we are also sinners called to grant grace and forgiveness to other sinners, sinners like me. In closing... I want to share a brief story. It's the incredible true story of one who has been both a receiver and a giver of grace and forgiveness. It's the rest of the story from the movie Unbroken. Louis Zamperini was a well-known and famous U.S. Olympic runner before the war. That would be World War II if you haven't seen the movie. He was a bombardier of a B-24 in the Pacific during the war. After his plane went down, he and a pilot survived for over 40 days in a raft, excuse me, only to be picked up by the Japanese. He spent over two years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. The statistics are sad. 37% of the POWs in Japan did not even survive. Many of the men who did were scarred physically and emotionally for the rest of their lives. Such was the case of Zamperini until he found Christ. After the war, he struggled mightily with flashbacks, nightmares. He was plagued by hatred and bitterness. He turned to alcohol. His life was a complete mess and his marriage in ruins. But Christ took away his nightmares, cured him of his alcoholism, and enabled him to do something, catch this, to love his former enemies. Even the guard that mistreated him so badly, Mutsushiro Wantanabe, they called him the bird. A year after coming to Christ, Louis went to Japan. He was a joyful man, his marriage restored, his nightmares and flashbacks gone, 
his alcoholism overcome. He went to... Thank you. He went to Tokyo. I just supposed to do that and I forgot. I lost my train of thought here. After a year, after coming to Christ, Louis went to Japan. He was a joyful man. His marriage restored. His nightmares and flashbacks gone. His alcoholism overcome. He went to a Tokyo prison where criminals were serving their sentences, war criminals. He hoped to find the bird, but to, <clears throat> to know for sure if this piece he found was true. Was it resilient? Was it lasting? Was it temporary? Could he face him? But the bird wasn't there. Louis was told that the guard had killed himself, but it turns out it wasn't true. He was in hiding. He knew he'd be put in prison for the crimes he did, and he stayed in hiding. Louis was struck with emotion when he was there. He was surprised by what he felt. It wasn't hatred, not relief either. It was compassion. Louis had found forgiveness. So Zamperini later returned to Japan in the year 1998. Remember when the Olympics were in Japan? And he carried the torch. He hoped to visit the bird who was no longer in hiding so he could tell him about Christ. But his overture was refused, which means the bird said no. This letter was sent instead. And I'm going to read it directly. I'm not going to look up. I want you to hear the letter. He wrote this. In fact, you can go online and you can find this. He, you see him reading it actually at a, at a pastor's uh, uh, a rally. To Mutsushiro Watanabe, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, <coughs> excuse me, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Signed, Louis Zamparini. We are all sinners in need of receiving grace. And yes, we are all sinners called to give grace and forgiveness to other sinners. Would you guys bow with me for a minute? God our Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace you have showed us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for never giving up on us. I pray, Father, that you would make us givers of grace the way you are to us. If there's someone in here who needs to receive forgiveness, to receive your forgiveness for their sins, I pray, Father, that you would open their hearts that you would show them that they can receive grace right there at the cross. And for those of us who might know you, if there are people who know you and they understand 
that they can be forgiven, I pray that you would encourage them to confess their sins, to get right with you. This extravagant grace that you offer to us, in turn you ask us to offer it to others. Give us that strength, give us that courage to do it. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.